We were going to continue on in our series this morning in 1 Corinthians, so please do turn it open with me. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been working our way through the first couple of chapters. And we're thinking about life together as a church. How can we do life together? And 1 Corinthians is an extremely helpful letter for us. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and there are many things that he will address, and this morning we're going to pick up in chapter 2. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul here is continuing his argument from chapter 1 about division in the church, and if you're reading in a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1145, page 1145. This is God's word to us. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. And the Spirit Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about about all things, and he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and indeed you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not worldly. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, And another I follow, Apollos, you are not mere men. Amen, and we'll 
end our reading there, and we'll continue to look at this just in a little while. Well, please do turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as we work through this passage. Perhaps as we were reading it, you were thinking to yourself, there's a lot of talk of wisdom and God's wisdom. And what I want us to understand this morning is this, that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom, that we can trust Him, that He has revealed Himself to us through His Word in the Holy Scriptures, and that we can hold on to the promises of the Lord, we can see who He is and what He is like, and therefore we trust Him. We trust Him. He is wise, and we get our wisdom from Him, not from the world, not from any amount of education or books, but rather we get our wisdom from God. And it is the Spirit that reveals that to us. So the Spirit comes to us as Christians, as a family, as a church here in this place, and the Spirit reveals God to us Sunday after Sunday, week after week in this place, but also individually the Spirit works in our hearts, in our lives, as we read from His Word to teach us what God is like. So that's a little way for us to try and understand a little bit of what it means by the wisdom of God, okay? So it's not ourselves, but of God. Now, our title for this morning, if we were to put a little title on it, is this. Christianity, is it head knowledge or is it a heart relationship for us? As we come along here week after week, as we hear God's Word preached, as we sit under God's Word, is Christianity a head knowledge for you or is it a heart relationship? Do you have a living relationship with Jesus? Here's a little way to illustrate this. I want you to imagine this. Two people are at university university together, Phil and Jude. And the pair, they meet at university and they happen to be in the same class together and they go along to their lectures together and all's well. But as often is the case with men and boys, Phil doesn't realize that Jude actually likes him. And she's dropping little subtle hints, but, but he can't see it. So time goes by, and and still Phil doesn't pick up on all the little telltale signs. So one day he happens to be out for a coffee with Jude's friends. And Jude's friends just happen to mention that Jude maybe likes Phil. And Phil, he can't believe it. He thinks to himself, she actually likes me. Why would she like me? And it twigs with him for the first time. Wow, this girl is into me a little bit, right? So now he has the head knowledge, right? He understands that Jude likes him. Jude fancies him. She wants to be with him. Head knowledge. But then Phil acts on it. So he takes her for a date. And then as they get to know each other, they they start to grow closer together. And they're going out with one another. And their love starts to grow. And then they get engaged. And then they get married. And they journey through the rest of life together. So what was once a head knowledge has become a, a living heart relationship. Once what started off as something up here, an understanding of what Jude felt, then became something wonderful and beautiful, a living relationship, a a heart relationship. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians, and as we have worked our way through these first couple of chapters, he's trying to push into the 1 Corinthians that, that this isn't just something away up here. That God and Christianity and Jesus isn't something up here above them, but it is a living relationship. And as they work out this living relationship, there's going to be a tension. There's a tension between the spiritual 
and the flesh. Spiritual and flesh. And here we see this, this battle popping up again because throughout chapter 2, what's going on is, is almost like a, a wrestling match between the wisdom, wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Some people are following the wisdom of the world. They're, they're soaking in the wisdom of the world and others are following the wisdom of God. And, and Paul's really trying to help the church in this. So he's trying to show them that there's a big difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. There's a huge difference between hearing about God and having a living relationship with God. And, and this is a problem that has plagued the church and still plagues the church that many people gather in week after week into many meeting houses across our own island and they know about God, but they don't know God. So whenever Nigel got up and was able to pray for us as a, as a family this week, because we are hurting, because there has been much pain in our church family this week, if we don't, if we don't know God, then that just floats over us. We don't understand it. But if we know him, then we have joy, deep-rooted joy, that we have sure and certain promises that we can cling on to, that we can look to the wisdom of God and not to our own ways. So as we work through this this morning, there's three little things I want us to see, and they'll come up on the screen for us. Um, first, Christ comes in humility for the humble. Secondly, Christ comes hidden to some, but as a gift to many. And thirdly, Christ will bring unity for us. That's my fault. The third point has dropped off the, the slide. But that's our three points. So firstly, Christ comes in humility for the humble. And, and this is the first five verses here of chapter 2. What's going on? Well, Paul is still running this argument from chapter 1, verse 10. If you look at it there with me, please, in, in your Bible, you'll see it. What does he say in chapter 1, verse 10? I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. See, some people are following Apollos. Some people are following Paul. Some people are following Cephas. Some people are following Christ. And chapter 3, verse 3, which we read together, tells us what's going on. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, what's going on? This church has been ripped apart. And why is it being ripped apart? It's being ripped apart because some people see men and they see their nice words, their fancy ways of explaining the gospel and explaining the, the, the ways of God, and they start to follow that. Why? Well, the Corinthian church had started to soak up the culture of this cosmopolitan city. You see, the people of the city, what do they value? Well, they valued eloquent speech, elaborate philosophies, beautiful arguments, smooth rhetoric. So nice words, progressive thoughts, power, prestige, pomp, wealth. If you were from a good family, all of these things were were escalated and heightened. They were the things to be obtained. But Paul comes and he says, I don't want you to be impressed by fancy rhetoric. What does he do here in chapter 2? We see it. He, he comes, verse 1, I don't come to you with eloquent words or human wisdom. 
Verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is focused on Jesus. He did not flinch from proclaiming that the Lord of this world was crucified. So what's going on there? Why, why, is, this, why is this strange for us? It's maybe a little bit hard for us to understand this morning what's going on. Well, the, the way of the cross in this culture was a shameful way. This was a shameful message. Why? Well, the cross was reserved for the worst in society, for the lowly and for the hated. It was really for the scum of the Roman world. That's how they dealt with the scum. They would nail them to a cross. And the cross was a slow and humiliating death. Its victims would be stripped naked. They would be beaten. They would fight for every breath whilst crying in pain. And the cross would slowly drain its victim of all of its energy. The nails would burn into their skin and their lungs would fight for every breath. So whenever Paul says, I came to you and I resolved to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, what was he saying? What was he asking people to come and to follow? He was asking them to follow Christianity, to follow Christ, which meant following a man who was humiliated and who was nailed to a cross, and who would die in the most embarrassing way, who would share a death with how the Roman Empire would label most of the people that hung on a cross as the scum of the world. And for these people in Corinth, it meant following a foreigner, a foreigner who was a a joiner, a woodworker by trade, who was born in a suspect circumstance to nobodies from a nowhere backwater. And who were Jesus' main men? Well, they were fishermen and they were tax collectors who were despised. And even one of his closest betrays him. So whenever Paul says, I came to you and I wanted to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that seemed like foolishness to you, foolishness to the world, you can start to understand why. But as Nigel looked at last week, chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We'd never think of the cross in that way. Sure we wouldn't. How humiliating and embarrassing, how the people in this context viewed it as shameful. Because for us, the cross is central to our faith. It is key. It is, it is, in many ways, a horrible thing, but a beautiful thing for us because it's how we are redeemed and through Jesus' resurrection. But you see, we know that Jesus here came to the cross, and who did he come for? He came for the sick and not for the well. He came to save sinners. He came to save and not to condemn. And Paul preaches this message that the king of heaven came in meekness. So Isaiah 61 and 1, what does Jesus come to do? He comes to bring good news to the poor. He was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison for those who are bound. A humble message. But Jesus came to save humble people like us. So it's a good message for us. And that's what Paul is resolved to know here in the first five verses, that it may seem like foolishness, but this is the power of God. Verse five, why? So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If our salvation, 
this morning rests on us, we would lose it. If our salvation rests upon us and our attitude and how we live our lives, we would not be in a great place. So Paul says, look, the cross is what you base your faith on. Not in human wisdom, but in God's power. Then in the, 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 the real body here of chapter 2, and we come to our second point, Christ comes hidden to some, but as a gift to many. Christ comes hidden to some, but as a gift to many. I'm trying to think, how does this apply to us? Well, imagine Bargain Hunt for a little minute. If you've ever watched Bargain Hunt, uh, and uh, it's on repeat several times on many channels, and what happens in Bargain Hunt is they're sent out, the group are sent out to get a little antique or two, and usually they spend massive amounts of money on a, on a crazy antique, and it's not really worth very much. But the odd time, they find a little gem, something really special, something really valuable, and they might pick it up for 10 pounds and make 100, all right? Well, this little painting that's on our screen for us, this is like that, right? This, this little painting was found in a basement in New Jersey, and it lay undiscovered for many years, but after the homeowner died, the children decided that they would have a, a valuator come in and, and help them with the house and see if there were any valuable antiques in it. And they didn't even notice this, but it went to auction with many other items. And actually, it's a rebrand. If you're into art, you'll know who that is. I will admit, I don't have a clue who he is, right? But it's a good illustration, right? And I found this. So, rebrand, right? This is a rebrand. I assume he was a very famous artist. And... Some people are saying, yes, John, he was, okay. And they valued this painting at $500. How much did it fetch? $4 million, right? $4 million. Somebody commented about the painting that it was remarkably unremarkable. Remarkably unremarkable. You see, this is hidden. To me, it's hidden, right? I haven't a clue. But to those who understand art, this, this is worth £4 million, or four million dollars. And it's the same for Jesus. He has hidden the sum, and yet he is a gift to many. So whenever Paul here starts to explain that, that, that the wisdom of this world, look in verse 6, the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the rulers, who are, they, they, they will come to nothing in verse 6. And in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understand God. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul's really starting to push into is, is one of the touchstones of the Reformed faith, a doctrine that is called total depravity. Total depravity. What does total depravity teach us? Well, it teaches us that, that salvation is from God alone. That it is God that opens blind eyes. That without Him, we are totally depraved. We are lost, we are blind, we cannot see, but it is God that opens blind eyes. It is God that saves people. So if we are to understand total depravity, a little way of understanding it is like this. Imagine we are in a swimming pool. It'll come up for us. Imagine that we are in a swimming pool, and the swimming pool is 20 meters deep, and the water in the swimming pool is only three meters high, and there's no steps in this pool, there's no way of getting out, so we're stuck. And that's a, a picture of us spiritually speaking. In this pool, 20 meters deep, the water's three meters high, we have 17 other meters to go, there's no way we can reach it, there's no way we can climb it. We're stuck, we're stuck, in our case, in sin. 
until someone comes, the Lord Jesus comes and lifts us out of the pool, right? He lifts us out, sets us on the side, and now we can see. Now we can understand. Now we can see the things of God. So Paul is trying to help the people understand this, that it is God who saves. It is God who opens blind eyes. It is God's wisdom that we should trust and not our own. He's trying to help the people to see that they were stuck, but that Jesus saves. That they were helpless, but Jesus comes as the helper. And that they were doomed, but Jesus comes as the deliverer. So the wisdom of the age here in Corinthians and in Corinth, it's in verse 6 here. It's a message of wisdom, but it's only of this age or of the rulers of this age. And what happens to this wisdom, the wisdom of the world? Well, it comes to nothing, verse 6. See, the wisdom of our age, the wisdom of the age in Corinth comes to nothing. But whenever the Christian sees God, whenever the Spirit takes us out of that pit of destruction and lifts us and sets us upon the rock that is Jesus, whenever He opens our eyes to see who God is, it becomes a a living relationship. And that's what Paul starts to lean into here. Verse 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Those who love Him. Verse 10, God is revealed to us by His Spirit. So knowing God, understanding God, being able to see God, it's all from Him. It's all by His work. It's all through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And it is a great gift that brings us into relationship with Him. So Paul's teaching that the Spirit is able to make the wisdom of God known to us through the Scriptures because the Spirit is God. It makes it possible to understand who He is, what He likes, knowing, appreciating, and loving God. So this morning, as a church, as we look at this passage, what should we see? In the midst of all this talk of wisdom and the Spirit, we should see this, that our salvation is a gift of God. None of our salvation rests on ourselves. So whenever we see this, it lifts a great weight from us that salvation is brought about by the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, that it's the work of our triune God, not of ourselves, so that we can have praise this morning for our God and what He has done for us. And then as we understand this in a living relationship, in our heart knowledge, that it starts to change us and transform us as we know God and as we get to enjoy God. So Paul's trying to put God up here for us and for the church in Corinth so that they wouldn't follow after the ways of the world, that they wouldn't run after the wisdom of this world, but rather that they would see that that there is no wisdom, that there's no wisdom in education because that's what they elevated, but rather the wisdom of God comes through sanctification, right? The wisdom of God does not come through education, but it comes through sanctification. And for us, that's so helpful here this morning because that gives us something to focus on. That if we want to be wise, if we want our congregation here to understand God, to truly love Him and to know Him in a way that transforms our heart, then what are we concerned about? Yes, education is important. 
but actually we're more concerned about sanctification, about being holy as a group of people here in this place, that we want to live our lives for Jesus in light of who he is, so that we come Sunday after Sunday and we pray, Lord, forgive me for the sins of this week. Move me, shake me, change me, mold me to be more like your son so that I may get a heart of wisdom. Paul's trying to show the people at Corinth that there's something more. James 3.17 shows us this. I'll read it for us. James 3.17, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom is found in our sanctification and not our education. So Paul is continually driving this church back towards Jesus, back towards him, back towards the cross, back towards being holy. So the question for us, as we think about wisdom and the wisdom of the world, which is diametrically opposed to the ways of God, for us, why do we listen to the world? As Christians, why do we shrink back from the truth of Scripture? Why do we think that there are other ways to bring people to Jesus other than through Jesus? Why are churches surrendering surrendering fundamental truths of Scripture Whenever we're told here this morning that it is the way of the world is foolishness and it will not endure. So for us, please this morning, as we go out from this place, do not be ashamed of God and his ways in our world. In the office, live your life for Christ, even though you may be a laughingstock. In the school, live your life for Christ, even if you're the weird one. In your family, live your life for Christ, even if it makes you the bigot of the family. And in the public sphere, live your life for Christ, even if that means we are hated. Why? Verse 9. Because of the wonderful things that God has prepared for us who live for him. And the world won't understand us, and that's okay. They won't understand the way of the cross and why you live your life the way that you do. The world won't understand why we don't take drugs. The world won't understand why we we want to live holy lives. The world won't understand why we want to give money to our church. The world won't understand why we want to affirm biblical marriage. The world will not understand why we hold to a binary understanding of male and female. The world will not understand why we live for each other. The world will not understand why we live humbly and with a servant attitude. And the world will not understand why we want to live our lives with our hands open for God. But for us, God has given us his spirit so that we can see what he is doing, that we can see him, understand him, trust him, love him, and say that he is good. So in the wisdom of God, this week, the church family here has experienced hurt. And yet we can come together here on a Sunday morning, and we can still declare him as good, as the one that we trust, as the one that we love, as the one who loves us, 
and we see that his ways are greater than ours, that he has worked all of history for us. That is his wisdom. So we trust him this morning, not not in an empty sort of a hope sense, a, a lacking sense, but in a deep, full, assured way that we can trust him because he is wise. Our time is gone here this morning. I'm going to leave my third point and I'm going to go to our conclusion. How do we distill all of this down? How do we distill it? Paul's argument here in chapter 2 is this. Christianity is a head knowledge, is not a head knowledge. It is a heart relationship. Christianity is not a head knowledge, but it is a heart relationship that we understand things in our mind that transforms our hearts. That we don't just look at Jesus and analyze him, but that we know him. And that the wisdom of God is for us. It's something that we can trust. It's something that has been revealed to us by the Spirit. So this morning, God is inviting us into a relationship with him in which we can understand him. He uses this illustration that no one can understand a man's thoughts except his inner self. And so it is with God that only the Spirit can understand him. And listen, that's been revealed to us. The God who created our whole world, this whole universe, has revealed himself through the Spirit in our hearts, through the Word, so that we may understand him and know him. So it was the wisdom of God to send his Son into the world to save a broken, lost people, to bind up the brokenhearted and to bring forgiveness to the sinner. And with these words, we will close this morning. Ray Ortland, often as he welcomes people to church, says these words, but they're so applicable for us. They're so applicable because in the way of the wisdom of the world, it is empty. But then he says this, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever will come. Christ says, come. The way of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to us, It is the great news that saves us from our sin and gives us new life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that there is more to this world than the wisdom that it offers. And Father, we see that through this passage that we need you. And Father, we pray that for many of us here today, that just as we started our service with the words of Psalm 40, that we would praise you because you have put a new song in our mouth, that you have helped us to see who you are. You have revealed yourself to us through the Spirit, not to follow men or man's wisdom, but to follow you because you're the one who has lifted us from the pit of destruction and set our feet upon the Son, the Lord Jesus. 
Father, help us to live in light of this and to give you all of the thanks, all of the glory, all of the praise here today. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.